It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 291 for May 6th, 2012. This week, Scareware and how some guidelines for corporate IT managers can help home users. How to print a non-printable PDF or extract text from a locked PDF. In short circuits, is Microsoft frightening Apple? Google's managers may feel that the company is under siege. Phone numbers proliferate, and I have a bunch of short notes from all over. You're sitting at the computer working on something. Suddenly, a pop-up warns you that the computer is infected and that you must do something immediately to remove the threat. You're offered a link, you click it, and from there it's downhill all the way. This problem is real, and it's serious. For network administrators, it could be a disaster. No matter where you see something like this, the first thing to keep in mind is this. You don't have to do something immediately. Take time to think things through. As first responders are taught, Assess the situation so that you're part of the solution and not part of the problem. Fake virus warnings are common. and They use social engineering to lure users to malicious sites and then scare them into paying for fake threat removal tools. Those tools, though, usually just make things worse. Antivirus company Sophos has prepared a report called How to Keep Scareware Off Your Network. But parts of this report can help home and small office users avoid the threat, too. I'm talking about fake security software, which pretends to find dangerous security threats, such as viruses, on your computer. The initial scan is free, but if you want to clean up those fraudulently reported threats, you'll need to pay. I have observed scanners as they locate threats in the Windows directory of a computer. In one case, the computer was a Mac. Macs don't have Windows directories. They don't have Windows. Sophos explains why the fake antivirus scam is so popular among cybercriminals, and I quote, It's a huge revenue source. Compared to other classes of malware, such as bots, backdoor trojans, downloaders, and password stealers, fake antivirus draws the victim into handing money over directly to the malware author. Victims typically pay around $120 via credit card to pay for the junk software that will supposedly fix the problem. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see an example of the kind of warning you might see. The one that I chose is designed to look like the AVG antivirus program. The warning says that a mass mailing process has been detected and, and I quote here, if you are not a spammer, spammer capitalized by the way, you must stop it immediately. Well, the absurdity of that statement should be obvious to even the most casual user of computers. But if you press stop, and possibly even if you press skip, the malware will be activated. Given the recent security problems with Apple's operating systems, this note from Sophos is particularly compelling. Macs are now a major target, including Mac-targeted social engineering being used from the bait to malware. We have been carefully tracking the developments of the Mac OS malware community, and we have concluded that fake antivirus for Macs is advancing fast and taking many cues from the Windows malware scene. 
So it's less likely that the bad guys will continue to display those stupid scans of Windows on Mac computers. Instead, the malware will look more like it belongs on a Mac. The infection vectors are many and varied, but most share a common thread, social engineering. The Sophos report says that the user is tricked into running the fake antivirus installer executable in a way similar to many other kinds of Trojans. Fake antivirus authors have used a huge range of various social engineering tricks, and they continue to come up with new ones all the time. Search results are among the most common vectors. The malware distributors create pages that respond to common search terms and deliver the victims to infected sites. The rogue page performs a scan, a fake scan of course, and reports infections that don't really exist. But email is also a common vector for these infections. Sofa says that a fake antivirus is often sent directly to the victim as an attachment or a link in a spam message. The message is predominantly sent through email, but other forms of spam have also been observed to deliver fake antivirus, for example, instant messaging, with applications that include Google Talk. The spam message itself usually uses social engineering techniques to trick the users into running the attached file or clicking the link. Some of the more common threats, and you've probably already seen a lot of these, account suspension scams. Victims receive an email message suggesting access to a specific account has been terminated and they need to run the attached file to fix the issue. Then there are e-card scams. An email is received purporting to be from a legitimate e-card company. In fact, a fake antivirus installer is what the person gets. Password reset scams. Victims receive a message supposedly from a popular website informing them that their password has been reset and that the new one is in the attached file. And the old favorite package delivery scam. Details of a fictitious recent postal delivery are included in the attached file. In reality, of course, the attachment will simply install fake antivirus. So you've probably seen most, if not all, of those from time to time. One of the more insidious threats comes from legitimate websites that have been compromised by having malicious code injected into a page. Fraudsters do this by breaking into the target website's hosting server and appending code, usually it's JavaScript, to HTML pages. The code can be used to send the browser to any type of malware hosting page, including exploit kits and fake antivirus. The code is almost always heavily obfuscated. All of these threats have a common outcome. Users are told that they must register or activate the fake product in order to clean up the threats. They're then taken to a registration website where they're asked to enter their credit card number and other registration details. These pages are convincing, and sometimes they even include logos and trademarks from industry-recognized organizations. So how can you protect yourself and your computers? Although the Sophos report is directed primarily at corporate IT managers, it also offers suggestions that can be used by individuals, families, and small offices. There are five primary steps. Reduce the attack surface, protect everywhere, stop the attack, keep people working, and educate users. Now, for home and small office users, that last step is undoubtedly the most important. Now, here's the key point. Users should know not to click on anything suspicious, and they should be reminded that the IT department, or for home and small business users, the installed anti-malware application, will take care of antivirus protection for their computers. If they're concerned about antivirus or have strange messages pop up, they should contact the IT department, 
or again for home users, the most knowledgeable user, probably the one who installed the anti-malware applications. And they should not try to sort these problems out for themselves. This goes back to one of the opening points. Be part of the solution, not the problem. Users should at least know how to refuse any anti-malware software that offers a free scan, but requires a payment for cleanup. No reputable brand does this. Adobe Acrobat files can be protected in a way that makes it impossible to print them, edit them, or extract text from them, or so Adobe claims. In fact, the password protection is fairly weak and can be easily circumvented. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, it's possible that the file you have contains text that you would like to use with appropriate attribution in a report or on a website. You can display the file on screen, of course, and manually copy the text, but what if you have a legitimate need to obtain all of the text in a single locked file, or snippets from dozens of locked files? The solution is a PDF restrict remover. It's not a password recovery utility because you don't need to recover the password. All you really want to do is remove the document restrictions so that the text inside the file is accessible. APDF offers several applications that work with PDF files. Some are free, others are reasonably priced. Restrict Remover, for example, costs just $10. Once installed, it's supposed to appear in the computer's context menu when you right-click a PDF document in Windows Explorer. Now, I haven't found that to be the case, but you can easily run the application, navigate to the PDF document you need to extract text from, and then have Restrict Remover remove the restrictions. The process takes just a few seconds, and the result will be a PDF that offers accessible text and a backup version of the file with the restrictions still in place. The built-in encryption method provided by Adobe gives a PDF the potential to have two passwords, master and user. The master password is required to make any changes to functions controlled by the user password, and the user password controls whether anyone but the owner can copy, modify, print, or annotate the document. A document is encrypted whenever a user or owner password or restrictions are supplied for the document. However, a user is prompted for a password on opening the document only if the document has a user password. None of this should be confused with the option to activate what's called Reader Rights. Reader Rights make it possible for users of Adobe Reader to fill in form fields and perform certain other functions. The application, a PDF Restrict Remover, comes with a 15-day free trial during which it operates as Nagware. A PDF publishes something like 80 utility applications that convert PDF documents to other formats or convert files created in various programs to PDF. The applications range in price from less than $10 to around $80. So if you have a locked PDF document that you need to unlock, take a look at a PDF Restrict Remover. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website.
In Short Circuits, Mercury News reporter Richard St. Villius wrote about the tech triangle of Microsoft, Apple, and Google this week, spurred no doubt by the announcement that Microsoft will invest $300 million in Barnes & Noble. The article is a worthwhile read. The $300 million Microsoft investment gives Barnes & Noble some breathing room, just as a similar Microsoft investment allowed Apple to remain afloat in the late 1990s. And just as with the Apple deal, Microsoft gets something out of this generosity, too. Later this year, Microsoft will ship its new Windows 8 operating system, which runs on devices ranging from servers to phones and tablets. Microsoft would like to have some content for those tablet devices, and that's where Barnes & Noble figures into the deal. But the Barnes & Noble reader, the Nook, runs on Google's Android operating system right now. It seems reasonable to expect that Microsoft will apply a certain amount of pressure to wean the Nook away from Android toward Windows 8. But how does Microsoft frighten Apple at a time when Microsoft's share of the marketplace is dwindling and Apple's is rising? Well, St. Villiers suggests that Apple's quick response to the announcement of Windows 8 by pushing quickly to release OS X Mountain Lion is a sign of Apple's concern. To me, he writes, it was a swift jab to the chin of Microsoft to remind investors and analysts to whom the mobile power truly belongs, regardless of how revolutionary Windows 8 is expected to be. And now St. Villiers says he wonders if Apple sees Windows 8 as a potential game-changer something that Microsoft has been searching for since Windows 95. But regardless of how successful or not Windows tablets and phones are, Microsoft is certain to leverage its existing enterprise footprint by virtue of its lead in the software and server markets for both consumers as well as corporate environments. A new version of Office is also in development. The full report is well worth the time it'll take to read it, and you'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Google's managers could be forgiven for thinking that they're under siege. It's beginning to appear much more likely that the Federal Trade Commission will take Google to court, much the same as the agency did when it filed suit against Microsoft some 15 years ago. And Google's don't-be-evil motto probably won't serve as a get-out-of-jail card. A case can be made for saying that Microsoft became a better company as the result of the suit. Might Google become a better company if it's forced to play by other people's rules? The core question is whether Google has abused its power to gain market share and other advantages. This week, the Department of Justice hired Beth A. Wilkinson, a former Justice Department prosecutor, to work on the case. The Department of Justice rarely hires outsiders, having done so only twice in the past ten years. And Wilkinson is a very high-profile prosecutor. Earlier, she had a key part in the trial that convicted Timothy McVeigh, the domestic terrorist who bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City. This comes at a particularly bad time for Google. The European Commission has been investigating the company for the past two years and will soon make a decision on whether to file suit. Defending itself against two antitrust suits on two continents could stretch even Google's substantial legal resources thin. The scope of the investigations by the European Commission and the FTC are similar. Even so, 
The tougher fight might be in Europe because the courts take a much stronger position against antitrust violations than U.S. courts do. Additionally, the European Union can impose some sanctions without a trial. Although Google commands about 70% of the search market in the United States, its dominance exceeds 90% in some parts of Europe. And antitrust investigators say that Google gives its own services unfair advantages when users conduct services. Specifically, if any Google entity offers the product or service being sought, links to those Google services typically appear at the top of the results list. The Department of Justice case against Microsoft curbed the company's power and allowed startups to compete in the marketplace. One of those startups was a little company that decided to call itself Google. Let's put this together. I have used Skype for several years to record interviews, but recently I got a little more serious about using the service. Sometimes it's helpful for a technology journalist to have a New York City telephone number. There's little chance that you'll be able to con anyone into giving you a 212 phone number, but I was able to snag a 718 area code number. This area code is primarily for phones in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, the Bronx, and the Marble Hill section of Manhattan. Many Manhattan cell phones also use the 718 area code, so the number I've registered with Skype does place me squarely in the New York City area. So that got me to wondering, how many phone numbers do you have? I have an office number, home number, two Google Voice numbers, one in central Ohio that forwards to my cell phone, and a second in Houston because I can spell TechBiter with it. I can use one of the Google numbers to make free outbound calls to any number in the U.S. or Canada, the Skype number costs $60 a year and inbound calls are free. Outbound calls to cell phones and landlines in the U.S. cost less than $0.03 cents a minute, plus a connection fee that's around $0.05. Cents. International calls range from a few cents per minute to several dollars a minute. The advantages to using the Skype number for interviews is that I can create a recording that places me on one stereo channel and the person I'm interviewing on the other stereo channel. And when I mix that down for the podcast, I can closely match the channels. In the late 1950s, I spent quite a bit of time trying to see how far I could call for free. The directory provided by the telephone company showed codes needed to call nearby towns for free, so I called one of those towns, obtained a new dial tone, and then used the codes provided to residents in that town to obtain a dial tone in another town. I think I made it, oh, probably about halfway from Belfountain to Columbus before something went wrong or the system got wise to what I was trying to do. So I guess in some ways I predated Captain Crunch, or Thomas James Draper. He's the guy who discovered that whistles included in a box of Captain Crunch cereal could be used to fool the phone company into providing free long-distance access. Well, today, who cares? If I don't need to record the conversation, and by the way, you can record conversations with Google Voice, it's just not as good as with Skype. But if I don't need to record the conversation, Google Voice provides free long-distance calls. Free. Good price. And if I do need to record the call, well, then I can fall back to Skype for less than $2 an hour.
a bunch of notes from all over. Adobe Camera Raw. Adobe released Camera Raw 6.7 this week. Camera Raw is a plug-in for various Adobe products. It offers fast and easy access to raw image formats produced by digital cameras. The new version adds support for nine new cameras. It also adds more than 30 lens profiles to help photographers automatically correct unwanted distortion and chromatic aberration. You might be wondering whether you need the new version even though it's free, because the previous version already supported your camera's RAW format. Well, the answer to that question is yes. Each new version of Camera RAW adds support for cameras you probably don't own. But each new version also includes improvements over the version you have. And Camera RAW can be used even with JPEG images to recover detail. The Camera RAW 6.7 plugin is available as a free download. For more information and to download the updates, you'll want to visit the Adobe Updates site. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Camera Raw is available for both Mac and Windows. Wi-Fi Underground. Ooh. New York City subway stations will have Wi-Fi access points operated by Boingo within the next five years. The subway serves about 4.3 million riders every day, and many of those people undoubtedly have Wi-Fi-capable devices that are currently useless once they enter an underground station. And most of the stations in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx are underground. Note, though, that I said the stations will have Wi-Fi. So once passengers are aboard trains and the trains leave the station, service will be unavailable. The system has 277 stations. Wi-Fi is currently operational in five stations along 14th Street. Harking back to the opening story, why Mac malware will expand. If you're a Mac user and you're still running a naked computer, you might want to rethink that decision. Apple is far behind Microsoft when it comes to fighting malware, primarily because Macs haven't needed much protection. Until now. Until now. That flashback attack last month reportedly handed the creators of the malware something like $10,000 per day. That's an estimate from Symantec. So if you're still in denial about the security of your Mac, really, it's time to get over it. The consensus among security experts is that when Apple's market share hits 15% or thereabouts, the Mac will be a viable candidate for various kinds of attacks. Apple now has about 12% of the market, and few Macs have any malware applications installed. Although Windows obviously still has the majority of the desktop market, about 95% of Windows computers have anti-malware software installed. So where's the coming threat? Do the math. I keep wondering how angry birds survive in space. Apparently, they do so very well. The latest iteration of the Angry Birds franchise, which I found to be distressingly addictive, hit 50 million downloads in a little over a month. 35 days, specifically. So I guess I'm not the only one addicted to this nonsensical game. I like to tell myself that I'm learning something about trajectories and gravity and science when I'm slingshotting birds from planet to planet. Angry Birds in Space features zero-gravity scenarios. The game has levels that include floating rocks, plants, birds with new powers, and gravity fields that can change. If you have an iPhone, an Android tablet or phone, or an iPad, there's an Angry Birds version for it. A Windows Phone version is in development, and you can download it for Windows, but you'll have to pay for it. Amazon.com, going above and beyond. 
I was listening to the Blues Brothers in early May, and in one of the tracks, Dan Aykroyd as Elwood J. Blues talks about the demise of the blues, particularly the Chicago blues. I've heard that track many times, but this time it caused me to go off in search of some Chicago blues tracks to add to my collection. The purchase reminded me of why I continue to buy from Amazon.com. I found Chicago Blues, an MP3 download for $16.98. My Amazon Visa card had about $50 worth of credits on it, so I decided to use those for the purchase. There was, however, no option to apply the credits at checkout. So I made the purchase anyway and wrote to Amazon support asking why I couldn't use the credits. The next morning, I received an apology that started with the explanation I had requested. At this time, we don't accept rewards points as payment method for MP3 downloads. Okay, if that's all I had received, I would have been satisfied, but the writer then went on. To remedy the situation, I've requested a refund of $16.98 for the purchase. The message continued with what appears to be boilerplate text, such as, I realize that no refund can really make amends for the disappointment caused, and I'm truly sorry that we were not able to fulfill your expectations for this level of service. I hope that you will honor us with another opportunity to prove the quality of our service to you. You know, Amazon is a very large company, and I am a very small, although fairly regular, buyer. Amazon didn't have to do more than just answer my question. That's all I wanted, just why couldn't I use the payment method I thought I could use? But by providing both an explanation and a refund, they further cemented the relationship. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere for marketers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.